Welcome back to Arab American Psycho. My name is Noor, and I'm so excited to share this week's guest. She's a Lebanese American feminist, activist, and founder of Wumina. Uh, welcome, Alisa Freha. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Did I fuck it up again? You did not. You killed it. <laughs> uh, we, we, had to, we had to take two because I, I did pronounce her literal uh, company incorrectly. So here we go. <laughs> That's okay. It's just my preference for how I pronounce the MENA region. And it's like, it's all in the name and the name is a pun and I value puns very much. So I want to make sure they hit. Uh, listen, I respect that. I respect a good pun. And, uh, you know, honestly, I I respect you even more for being like, hey, listen, you got you got to say it the right way to really feel the effect. <laughs> the women of MENA, we mean it. Um, to be honest with you, the 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 term Mina, or I guess I, I had never heard it until a few years ago. Has it been around for a long time? And I'm just like, I guess like unaware of things. <laughs> yeah, it's it's the conventional term that refers to the Middle East and North African region. But I understand why you probably wouldn't have heard of it because it's not so popular in the U.S. Um, it's definitely a term that's mostly used outside of the U.S. for some reason uh, in Europe, in the U.K., in uh, the Middle East as a whole. In Africa, they can they name this region as Mina or uh, or they'll play around with the letters. So like Mia is Middle East and Africa if you're not just taking North Africa, but the whole African region. So but in the U.S., they don't really talk like that. Yeah, I, I've rarely, I only started hearing it within the last few years. And to be honest with you, when I'm thinking about it, I'm like, I've heard about it through um, people I follow on Instagram who live somewhere in the Gulf region or something like that. That's where I feel like I started seeing it pop up. And I was like, I feel like this is relevant to me. What is this? Like, I feel like this, this is something that I should know. And I looked into it and I was like, huh. That makes perfect sense. But um, yeah, I'm really, really excited to talk to you because to be honest, you have quite an impressive resume and you were most recently named as one of the Middle East's uh, power businesswomen in 2021 by Forbes Arabia, which congratulations, that's fucking huge. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, it was, um, I was actually really hyped about that and I'm not going to shy away from it, but I was hyped because if you look at that list, like you would not expect to see, you know, a 30 year old woman with pink hair um, among the list <laughs> of like, you know, much older, uh, more established, like business women in gray kind of pantsuits, right? So, so I was kind of like, yeah, that's what I want to see. I want more diversity and more colors on those lists. So younger versions of myself can maybe like have a, a role model or something to look up to and be like, hey, I can have piercings and, and multicolored hair and an undercut, you know, and still be listed in Forbes. Oh, absolutely. I mean, some of I mean, I know it's different in, 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 you know, in the Emirates and stuff like that, but like I live in America and mo literally the most successful people I know have piercings and colored hair or like a shaved head. Like those are the coolest, most successful, intelligent people. I'm like, I actually am starting to think there's some type of like correlation. Like I should get a face piercing or something. Like I, I, I'm like genuinely, truly just, I think it's because like you I don't want to speak on your behalf, but like you feel very confident in yourself. So you don't feel like you need to like look a certain way. Yeah. Well, I mean, when you stop caring, uh, that gives you really a lot of power. And, you know, when I first started out, I was 23 and I literally gave myself like a straight 
edged haircut right before moving to Dubai because I was entering the world of like entrepreneurship and business. And I was like, this is how business women like look. And, mm -hmm. you know, I had been like painting, body painting at raves and like baking cakes in, in Paris and doing slam poetry. And I was like, okay, I need to downplay my hippie side. And, and because nobody's going to take me seriously. I'm already like a woman in a very male dominated space. I'm already like a kid to these people. So, you know, I need to try to look as professional as possible. And actually that was one of the biggest misconceptions I played into in the earlier years. And it took a long time to like break out of that and say, you know, wait a minute, let me really lean into who I am and how I feel most inspired and brush off the initial hate comments. But uh, eventually it's, it, it brought a lot of power to it because people look at you and they go, oh, you, you're different. So you think differently. So you do things differently. And, um, and that makes them really respect you a lot more, I think. Absolutely. I, I completely agree with that. And I think it's because people are generally more drawn to um, and kind of respect people who are really comfortable in their own skin, whether or not they realize that's happening. I think people are just kind of like, there's something about you that is making me feel kind of drawn to you. But it's, it's that, I mean, authenticity is a word that I feel like has been completely bastardized. But like, for lack of better words, authenticity is something that people respect. And when they feel it, even without it being, you know, um, something that they're consciously aware of, they're like, yeah, I like this. I'm, I'm into it. Yeah. And whatever that authenticity looks like. Right. So, I mean, I have friends of mine that are incredibly, um, I mean, geeky, like they, they live in <laughs> the, in the gray suit vibe is their vibe, you know, the white shirt vibe, like they're very dry. They'll, they just don't understand why, you know, I need sparkles or colors in my life. Uh, but that's just who they are and how they are. And it, because that's truly what makes them them, you feel this, they're just being real with you. And it's yeah. a very attractive quality. So regardless of what your authenticity kind of looks like, I think, yeah, learning to lean into that is really a, is really a dope thing to do. That's a really important point to make, though, because I think people express their creativity in a lot of ways and, and, and just self-expression doesn't necessarily have to come in like an external form of, you know, hair, makeup, uh, tattoos, the way you dress, anything like that. Like it doesn't have to be just that it can be literally, I don't really care about dressing creatively. Like I just want to wear these same things every day. And that's, that's what I, that's how I feel most comfortable and most happy because yeah, like uh, there's a lot of people who just simply do not care to express themselves in that way. And that's who they are. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I actually, I wanted to tell you how I, how I came across your Instagram account. Cause that's how I discovered you. I don't think I've told you this. No. You posted an IGTV that showed up on my like discover page, I think. And I see, oh, you know, this girl who I'm like looking at her and I'm like, this girl looks like she's white, but also looks like she might be Arab. And so I was like, well, let's see, who's, what's this girl all about? And you posted this IGTV about um, trigger warning, marital rape. Um, and I was like, I fucking love this person. Who is this person? I love her so much because I just, the last thing I expect to see on IGTV or any on Instagram in general is someone who is Arab talking about marital rape. That's just not something I expect to see. So I was 
really excited to see that you were speaking about it so openly and candidly. And I think just being an advocate for women. And so I looked at a bunch of your other content and I started like, you know, just kind of like, who is this person? And I was like, oh shit, like you are truly an advocate for women in a way that brings me so much joy. Have you always like, has that been something that you kind of always have done or was there something that moved you in that direction? Oh my God. Well, first of all, thank you. I'm blessed. <laughs> I don't know what to say. <laughs> thank God you asked the question because I don't know how to respond to that. But <laughs> um, no, that means a lot. And then, you know, honestly, it, it's always, my mind has always worked in a way where I didn't, I didn't really understand why things were taboo to discuss. Like I didn't understand, I don't understand hypocrisy and I really don't stand for it. And I, I also don't stand for, you know, being silenced um, and being silent around the, um, you know, discussing people that are disenfranchised and and situations that really shouldn't exist uh, in our region, around the world. I mean, if we're taking the example of marital rape, this is an issue that exists around the world, regardless of the culture um, or country that you're in. So it's a topic that isn't discussed. It's a, a topic that should be discussed and that weirdly enough, it, people don't actually accept, you know, like you think people have a problem with understanding consent in the United States or, or around the world. And they're talking about college kids and being drunk and what you're wearing. And can one thing be consent? Can it be can nonverbal consent be consent, but you're actually taking it to another level where it's so much deeper and, and trying to tell people that actually this this issue of consent also exists in places of marriage and that marrying somebody does not just give that person, you know, the, the right to do things to you um, against your consent. Uh, so I, I never really. Yeah, I just don't understand why we have to be quiet about these things. Like, like, why? Because it's Aib. You know, because it's Aib is this weird Arabic word for like shameful, right? It's because it's taboo, because we just shouldn't. Like, I think that's bullshit. And and uh, everything in the world is better if we talk about it. Everything in the world is better with conversation. So I'm I'm not really afraid to say that awkward thing that makes that conversation happen. And I've also noticed through the content that I've created that not only is my is my ability to just say those things a positive thing, but my ability to communicate it in a very honest and real way has really struck a chord with audiences and, and specifically men in the audience who would never have these conversations between each other. And they would never have these conversations with the women in their lives. And they're being told upfront in a very real, understandable, digestible way, what the situation is, why it's a problem, um, how, how common these issues are. And you're actually also seeing a lot of young women in the region be able to use the proper terminology to describe their experience, um, which they might feel is intrinsically wrong. But because these subjects are taboo, they they don't know that it is wrong or that they can speak up about their discomfort. You know, so seeing that response has only kind of pushed me further to 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 really embrace that that desire I have to just be like, you guys don't want to talk about it. I will. That's, that's so amazing that, you know, first of all, that you're using your voice in that way, because I know that there's definitely, definitely 
a lot of people who are probably really mad about that. But I think, like you said, it's so important to have these conversations. And, and you know, you were talking about how uh, ter- the, using the correct terminology is something that is important. And it makes me think about, and it's actually sad that this is the first thing I thought about. I was a, a counselor for um, domestic violence and sex crimes for like about five years. And when we would talk to children about, you know, um, them being um, sexually abused, they didn't have the vocabulary to explain what happened to them. And it's important to have that vocabulary to really understand it. So we would do things to break it down to help, you know, without, you know, leading them into giving us an answer because children want to make you happy. So you don't, you want to be careful with how you're asking them questions. You don't want it to be like a leading question, but them not having the correct terminology or vocabulary is, does make it kind of difficult for them to sometimes let people know what's happened to them. And it's very sad to me that there are so many women who don't know these things because of shame and taboo and ayab and like so many women. I mean, did you watch Bridgerton? Not yet, man. Everybody wants to watch this freaking show. Dude, there's, I guess, a little bit of a spoiler alert, but there's a girl in it who knows literally nothing about sex because her mom never had this conversation with her. And it was a fucking problem. And I'm just like, this is literally Arab girls. Like not all Arab girls, but like, like your moms are not, they, they were raised in a different time for the most part where like, these are just not conversations to be had with women. You know what I mean? And I don't know if men are having these conversations. I think for men though, it's a little bit different because um, again, I, I don't want to make generalizations, but men are more inclined to, you know, be like, Hey, let's check out some porn and maybe gain whatever knowledge they can from that. Even though that's a whole other issue is learning about sex from porn. But women are, I would say less likely to do that, um, uh, for a myriad of reasons, shame being probably the biggest one that I can think of, but it's just, it's so important for women to understand their body and also understand these terminologies. Like, like marital rape, because a lot of people feel like that's like a contradictory, you know, combination of words like marital rape. Like, how does that make sense? But it's like, no, just just because you're married to someone does not mean you now own their body. Like they still they still own their body and can consent or decide not to consent to you penetrating their body. Um, But yeah, yeah, I just yeah, really, what's really interesting is is beyond just the topics and bringing up these like, quote unquote, taboo topics. Um, or educating your audience, what I've really found a lot of um, beauty in is I've created a space on my page that allows for a non-judgmental, open and honest conversation. And so what I usually do, and it's not always an IGTV, but oftentimes it'll be in my stories where I'll bring up a topic and consent is a great one. Like I did an IGTV on consent and then I brought it up in my stories and I explained further by giving different examples of like where consent, you know, is valid and where it's not. And here's movies and TV shows that like emphasize that this is consent or this isn't. And then I'll start getting messages and I get floods in my DMs of, of personal stories that really uh, that are very difficult to read from, from mostly young, young women who are explaining their situation. And this is the first time that someone's explained it to them and that this had happened to them in their, in, when they were a child or this happened to them last year or that they're shamed by their friends and family for what had happened. And they, they never you know, um, had a space to, to speak out. And then what I do is I screenshot anonymously and I'll post their responses and then people will respond to those responses. And, and sometimes people, whether male or female, 
will respond and they might disagree with what's being said, or they might be talking about a specific nuance that they want clarity on. And in a, if you were in a group of friends having this conversation, some people might be quiet because they feel like their opinion, you know, or their question is silly or their mm -hmm. opinion might be um, misunderstood. And what I've been able to do is I then just continue to, to kind of screenshot and share anonymously the back and forth between my audience that, has uh, created now this space where there is a, a topic um, that can be openly discussed safely. And I'm not blocking, you know, unless I'm being directly harassed, I'm not blocking anybody. You can have the opinion that you have and people might hate you for it or they might celebrate you for it, but at least you're having that conversation. And at least you've like taken a minute of your life to open up about your thoughts and people who very often would not have had this conversation with anybody are now having it and, and being educated about this subject. And I think that's, that's a really important like evolution of, of the, the, the idea of taking content and breaking kind of cultural conversational taboos with it. And I think like with most things, a lot of times we feel as though our experiences are unique and in the sense of like no one else has gone through this. I am the only person. And I think there's a little bit of relief that comes with knowing that other people have the shared experience and you feel less alone. You feel like you feel more capable of like handling it or, 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 or dealing with it because you're like, I am not the only one. You know what I mean? There are other people who have the shared experience and like, maybe, maybe if we talk about it, we can, we can heal together kind of thing. And I think that that's the type of community online that makes me so happy that the fucking internet and Instagram exists. Cause it's like, where else would these conversations be having because happening? Because like you said, I mean, they're hard, difficult conversations to have, even if you're amongst your friends, let alone people that you don't know in real life. But I think that also with that, um, that kind of, uh, platform you've created where you're like allowing people to speak about and share their experiences anonymously is really, really is important. And, and, and something that I think probably affects a lot of people's lives in a positive way. I, I really appreciate that. Um, I really appreciate that. And, and I hope, I hope it does, you know, I really hope it does. And I hope it gets some people who may not have like understood that their opinions are, are a problematic opinion. You know, we've, I've, I've even had like on the just to stay on the same train of thought but on the issue of consent you know we had men sharing the idea that like but don't women want you to chase them so isn't the no just part of the chase and you know these these i completely understand from these patriarchal macho mentalities where you know in some cultures there's this concept of the chase but actually like th there isn't you know what i mean like actually no you're much better off fully receiving a yes and a happy yes and taking that no as an actual no and and them speaking up about it and then doing so in a space that will take the time to educate them as to why that opinion is actually a problem. Um, and I hope that, that that has ripple effects, you know, later down the line, they think twice when, you know, they've been rejected by a girl and, and they're continuing to chase that 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 girl. Yeah. And I think what really kind of um, stood out to me and, and I'll be honest, enraged me was I think you had posted in that IGTV or you had mentioned that someone mentioned something like, oh, but it's halal. Like if you're married, it's, it's it makes it halal. And nothing enrages me more than when people um, 
use religion as a tool to be fucked up. Um, that really upsets me. I'm like, that's actually Islamically incorrect. Uh, not true. So first of all, wrong. And second of all, like, fuck you for trying to do that. Like, go read any Islamic, like any book. I think that it's kind of like, um, uh, a lot of things in, in religion, there's, you know, different schools of thought, especially with Islam, you know, there's so many sects and stuff, but I think like, there's like a unanimous agreement that like, you can't rape your wife. Like you should not do that. Like that's not that's not a thing that you should do. Um, but yeah, I I really am glad that you also mentioned that because I think a lot of times when it comes to religion, people will just hear something and they're of the same faith, so they're like, oh, that's true or that must be true. But like they've never actually like looked into it on their own time to like verify that that is in fact true. Which in this case, it's not. Exactly. So exactly, and that's a great that's a great example like that. That I'll tell you, that's that was like a young twenty-something um, Egyptian guy that responded to that message saying no, but it's halal, and you know, again, I'm not going to block him. I'm not going to like just dismiss this person's opinion. I'm going to share it because it's a genuine opinion that if somebody took the time to write is shared by more than one person. So right. it's worth acknowledging and having a discussion about because. First of all, I'm not Muslim. I'm Arab, but I'm not Muslim. So I'm not one to speak on the Quran. But I can tell you from anything that I've understood of Islam that it's not correct. But I'm still not the one who's going to say it. What I'm going to say is, here's this person, here's their opinion. What do you guys think? And what happened was we then got a flood of just boom, 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 people coming in, talking about their religion, what it actually teaches, how he completely misunderstood the Quran, what the truth of the Quran represents, which is based respect, essentially, in the sanctity of marriage, and and explaining to him, which is a much stronger uh, con- convincing argument than if I were to just like cuss him out, basically, as, as being a terrible person. You're you're a much more patient and kind person than I am. I I don't know that I would curse him out, but I would probably like be full of rage and block him and then delete the message so I never had to see it again and I could erase it from my memory because I I might not respond to people, but like if I see the message for long enough, it will be very hard for me not to. So as a form of self-preservation, I will most likely block and delete it so that I don't have to see it again. But yeah, I I just it really as you know, as a Muslim, especially a Muslim living in America, I'm like, the narrative around Islam has already been pretty, you know, not great. And I'm like, we don't need this. This is, you know what I mean? Like, let's, let's stop adding fucked up shit to it. Like, can we not, can we stop making things up and making it a part of Islam? But um, I did want to ask you though, because I think that uh, your upbringing and, and, and kind of the cultures that you grew up around are, are really interesting. So let's, let's start from the beginning. Where were you born? I was born in Paris, France. And how long did you live there for? Uh, I lived there for for 23 years. I lived there for my whole uh, my whole like life basically until I came to the UAE in in 2013. So I did all of like all my schooling there, my university uh, and then and then came here in that next chapter. And you're, I think, I believe your dad is uh, from Lebanon and you I think you mentioned your mom's from California. So what what was that like growing up in France with a Lebanese dad, an American mom? Like, what was that experience like to you? Yeah, well, so my um, exactly, my dad is Lebanese, uh, and and we're Emirati nationalized. Just to like add to the to the layering, you know, <laughs> that my passport is from the Emirates, the country that I live in right now, um, which is an incredible an incredible gift to have. 
And, and so I've got those two Arab cultures on my dad's side. And then my mom's from California. She's from, you know, she was born in the Bay Area, grew up in Sacramento. Now they're in Palm Springs, LA area. So um, proper California girl, short shorts, you know, Daisy Duke shorts and like blonde <laughs> hair and the whole thing. So um, it was cool. It was, it was, uh, it was not distinct enough until 2001. Um, where I was in, obviously, because my my dad is the Arab one, that meant that the household was an Arab household. So I grew up in a very Lebanese structure, Lebanese household, Lebanese cultural framework, um, except in Paris outside, but inside the house, it was, it was very Arab. Um, and then, you know, just a summer holiday or a Christmas in the States. But what happened is once, um, you know, once 9-11 happened, and I think a lot of Arab Americans have a big turning point in their life with 9-11. But, uh, you know, we were in Paris and it was really trippy because even if it, it, it didn't really matter what type of Arab or what what state in America that happened in, all of a sudden your Arab identity and your American identity are at a conflict. And so all of a sudden this thing that was just like a unified identity in my mind became too very much diametrically opposed and conflicting ideals. And, um, and, and that was around the same time my parents got a divorce. So it was like a really, really uh, interesting and really trippy, but it, it, it basically created like two worlds that I became very aware of that I would fluctuate in and out of, you know, I was watching American sitcoms and reruns on TV. And I had changed into a very American high school structure um, I went to the American school in Paris and then the American university in Paris. And I would spend, you know, weeks at my mom's house, which was a very American world. Uh, but then I would, uh, you know, spend most of my holidays somewhere in the Middle East, whether it was Lebanon or the UAE, and and still live very much most of my time in my dad's house, which was very much Arabic and under this patriarchal ideal where I'm still the youngest in an Arab family and a girl and you know, there are certain expectations of you and you can't be a certain way openly. You have to hide and, you know, you can't like just tell your dad, like, I'm going out with my friends till 10 p.m. or whatever, you know. <laughs> so it was it was very weird. Um, and and it, it, it thank God it's like eventually merged, you know, but it, I think a lot of third culture kids really relate to that fact of of having multiple conflicting identities that you kind of have to learn to to live with and and marry. Yeah, and I think that, you know, everything that you were saying, I was like, yeah, that I mean that that the the living in an Arab household thing and the kind of you need to keep certain things private, I think it's definitely challenging, but I think what makes it possibly even more challenging is then you have this American mother who probably doesn't, I'm, I'm assuming doesn't feel that way. No, not at all. My mom is just, my mom was super cool. And very, my mom is super cool. She's just, she's an amazing woman. And there's also a big generation gap between her and my dad. They have 20 years difference between them. So, you know, where my dad is this like very old Baba Lebanese guy. <laughs> you know, my mom is, is very much like the fun California mom, you know, like yeah. LA, we're going to like, we, we were, you know, we were like going to the same holiday destinations when I was in college, but her with her friends and me with my friends, you know, stuff like that. So, and she was always super chill. Like she'd let me 
you know, I'd be at my dad's house and it was, you can't go anywhere past, you know, 10 PM. A driver has to pick you up. Uh, I have to have the phone numbers, names and addresses of everybody who's going to be there. There's no sleepovers. But then my mom is like, oh, just go out with your friends, be home by one or whatever. Like, let me know, text me. You know, it was very different. Um, it was it was a very different dynamic to, to switch between. Definitely. So do you feel like that, that kind of upbringing of these kind of polar opposite parenting styles, do you feel like it made you have negative feelings towards the Arab culture in any way? You know, um, no, not at all. Well, that's good. <laughs> um, and, and again, I think because I grew up in the Arab culture, right? My house was predominantly Arab. And when I went outside the house, I faced, you know, the French uh, so <laughs> I don't know why that sounds just really intense. Yeah. Especially cause it's not just the French, it's like the Parisians and Parisians are like moody and you've got like, they're tough, man. You know what I mean? Like you got, yeah. they're like a happy go lucky, loud Arab and Amer- these are loud cultures, you know, we're like mm-hmm. our hand motions and we smile and we da- and dance in the streets. Like you have no shame. And the French are like, what are you doing? Why stop? This is a lot like, no, you know, they're so that was more of a conflict where in France, they have a perspective sometimes of, of Arabs. Um, and they also have a negative perspective of Arabs and they have a negative, negative perspective of Americans. And, yeah. uh, and so I think that was more this whole, like, but I'm, I'm also from here, but like, you don't think I'm from here, but you know, whatever. So, but I love where I'm from, but you guys don't. And, there was this weird, that was the bigger dynamic. And I think actually what was interesting was, you know, the, the Bush era. Um, and my, my father is a, is a political advisor and a, and a journalist um, and a diplomat. So he's very political in our house. And I think a lot of Arab families have, have very political conversations. But, uh, you know, the Bush era was a really, really tough era um, on Arabs. And, and I think... Th- the negativity of Arabs towards Americans was more something that I had to struggle with, you know, and actually looking at America in a bad way because they were the ones that started this war in Iraq, right? Yeah. They were the ones that like groomed and and grew Al-Qaeda. Like they're the ones who are attacking us when like, you know, most of our people didn't do anything. Like we're kind of, I don't understand why this is a case. And then you've got like, it's all led by like this babbling kind of idiot like this dude who who you're sitting and you're sitting there and you're like how the heck are you running this country and I think that created a lot of resentment more towards the American side than I had towards the Arab side and I actually made it a point when I graduated college to do the great American road trip I did a two and a half month road trip across the U.S. um, because I wanted to fall in love with America again and I wanted to connect with those roots. I think that as someone who I, you know, I, I was, I was born in America. I, I love, I, for a very, for a very long time felt very patriotic, like just, and there's been a steady decline in that feeling probably since around the Bush era, even though I was pretty young, but like you said, I mean, Arab homes, the news is on politics 
are those are the conversations that we are having at the dinner table. We, I feel very comfortable having those conversations, which I'm realizing in my adult life is not as common as I thought with a lot of my white American friends. Mm-hmm. Um, they feel very uncomfortable having these conversations. And I'm like, I don't get it. What are you talking about? Like, this is a super casual conversation. Yeah. <laughs> why, why can't we talk about this? Like, this is just like, LOL, like nothing. I'm not mad. I know I'm yelling, but I'm not mad, but it's just, this feeling of wanting to, to get that kind of feel that American kind of love that I had at some point when I was a child has been very difficult, especially, you know, there was Bush, and then there was more Bush. And then, you know, there's a little bit of Obama sprinkled in. So that was fun. And then the Trump that really fucked shit up for me. But yeah, I'm, 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 I'm hoping to, to, to love America at some point again, I don't hate it. But I also think that like, during that time after 9-11, like you said, it was it was this kind of moment where a lot of people really kind of um, hated the way things started happening after all that went down with with America. It just America was not a place where people were like, yeah, I love that place for a very long time. Like a lot of people were just kind of like, fuck that place, fuck their, you know, their politics and 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 fuck everything they stand for. This episode of Arab American Psycho is sponsored by The Doe. The Doe is a digital publication sharing anonymous stories to promote civil disclosure and provides a platform to lesser-known, often marginalized stories. The Doe publishes unfiltered narratives from verified anonymous sources, drawing attention to a broad spectrum of viewpoints that encourage readers to confront their own biases. Each month, The Doe explores new themes that help you gain perspective on a myriad of topics. February's theme is Roots, which might be my favorite theme thus far. One of my favorite narratives featured this month is titled, What Americans Can Learn from the Immigrant Spirit. This narrative is written by a second-generation immigrant who explains how Americans could benefit from embracing a newcomer's enthusiasm. The author writes, As we move through the present challenges in the country and around the world, we can benefit from calling upon the spirit of the immigrant, part of us that is forever open, ever ready, unwavering, willing, courageous, determined, resourceful, humble, ambitious, hardworking, expansive, and brave. The call of the time is to connect to our ancestors who helped build this nation so that we too can build a better future for ourselves and our communities, one united in trust and respect. As a first-generation American myself, this really resonated with me. I'm constantly in awe of my parents making the move to America and often think about how scary that must have been for them. The author's description of an immigrant is exactly how I would describe both of my parents and most immigrants I've ever come across. And I think we can all feel inspired by this narrative. I've linked this in the episode notes, but you can also visit thedoe.com. That's T-H-E-D-O-E, like a female deer, dot com to read more. Thank you so much to The Doe for sponsoring this episode. And again, I highly encourage you guys to check it out. It's really, really great. Now back to the conversation. Yeah, but you know, it's the same kind of, it, it was, and I realized it was this reductionary mentality that I had that looked at, again, like you associate the people with their government and the actions of the right. government, you just pass on to the rest of the people. And and that's not fair in a country of 330 million people. Like they deserve more credit than that, than to be generalized and lumped into, you know, um, uh, uh, the Bush mentality or the Trump mentality or whatever, um, whatever mentality you might disagree with, you can't just say that all 330 million people are represented by this one guy. And what was interesting about that road trip looking back now is it wasn't just a road trip. I, I did it with a, a phenomenal photographer um, friend of mine. His name's Skylar Green. 
And uh, he's at Sky Green on Instagram. If you guys want to, <laughs> an amazing photographer. And we basically just got in this car for two and a half months, and 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 it was a documentary blog. Like we didn't just want to travel; we wanted to document the journey. And this is before this is before like really travel vlogging and 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 you know I don't know the Instagram era. Instagram had just really been started being a thing in 2013. So. We, you know, we were, I would write, I would write about the places we were going and we would interview the people we were meeting and he would photograph the whole journey. And we called it a billion shades of beige. And this is, it had nothing to do with 50 shades of gray. Um, if any, the name, you know, maybe like the SEO helped a little bit. And, <laughs> and so we called it a billion shades of beige because I, I noticed when I would go back to the States that there are they're basically at that time especially in terms of commentary you're either black or you're white and and depending on other states you might be mexican you know or puerto rican um and or or brown but even brown wasn't like as openly like used like these shades of these colors were just literally like so binary and polarizing and when i would go back to the states i would just have people talk to me and they'd be like oh well you're a white girl who blah 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 blah, blah. and i'm like am i a white girl like am I? What? Really? But I'm Arab. Yeah, but you're a white girl. I'm like, well, but I mean, my mom's, Amer I mean, she is American. They're like the Scandinavian roots or whatever. Yeah. I guess what now is termed white passing, which is, it expands on this vocabulary idea. But the idea is I'm, I don't know what the hell color I am. I'm some sort of shade of beige in there, but white passing, meaning that in these, in these, very limited dialogues you know you're either one extreme or the other and I wanted to sh break that so we called it a billion shades of beige and we basically gave every human that we came across on this road trip a shade of beige um, based on not the literal color of their skin not the Pantone marker but actually the the their interests um, their cultural backgrounds their hobbies like their their characters and they were things like I was homos glitter bomb beige that was my <laughs> and uh and my friend Skylar was neopan americano because neopan is a type of film and he's addicted to americano coffees he used to have like I don't know like 32 ounces of black coffee a day and and so we would come across and just give people shades of beige and they could write in this questionnaire on the website at the time and like tell us the things they loved and we'd make them a sticker, you know, a digital sticker with their shade of beige and, and a unique name because we were like this whole black and white thing, like this one or the other is like, is so limiting. Like, let's have a dialogue about who you really are. And then, and then we'll make it fun with a shade of beige, but at least then we've gotten into this conversation. Um, and it plays back into this identity where I was like, well, apparently I'm white in America and apparently in France, I'm Arab, you know, and apparently in the Middle East, I'm French. Like, I don't know <laughs> when yeah. I figure it all out together. And, and, and I can definitely relate to that. And I think a lot of people can, and I, I, you know, I, I'll even notice it with my niece. She's, her dad is white American, um, you know, from Georgia, super Southern. And my sister is obviously Palestinian. And I've noticed she does this thing where she really heavily tries to like, mentioned that she is from Palestine, which I think is very funny because my sister was not born in Palestine. Um, and, you know, she's this little uh, white girl. And, and but I get it. I, un I completely understand her wanting to feel like she wants to almost prove a point. Like, I'm not just this white girl that you perceive me to be. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but there's more to me than that. And she just wants 
people to recognize her identity that she feels so strongly about even she's like 12 and I can see her doing it. And I, I know that that's something that she will probably struggle with in her life. People just immediately seeing her and being like, Oh, you're white. Like you're just a white girl. Like you're what in. And even if she tries to tell them, no, I'm, I'm, my mom is from Palestine. Well, you're a white passing Arab and, and there's nothing wrong with that. But I think that it's definitely, you know, people want to kind of put you in a box. I think it, it helps them kind of, uh, it makes you more digestible if they can just kind of like label you as something. But I mean, as a punk rock kid forever, I fucking hate that. So <laughs> I, I, I completely, I completely get it. It's like, yeah, don't, don't box me into like a thing unless it's like a fun thing, like beige glitter hummus. Then yeah, I would love that. I want to, but I want to really emphasize that that is almost uniquely American. Like I don't have to have that conversation anywhere else in the world. I don't have to have that conversation in the UK. I don't have to actually have that conversation in France. Like in France, they'll say, where are you from? And I will say I'm Lebanese American and they go great, you know, or like, okay, wow. Interesting. Or there's no, there's no color code. You know, there's your, there's a heritage, right? And, and in the, in Dubai, which is, I think my favorite thing about this place, right? There's a lot of great things. There's a lot of not so great things, but my favorite thing is that everybody likes to hear the story because everybody has the story. Everybody is like Swedish, Iraqi, born and raised in Finland, you know, or like a uh, Palestinian German born and raised in Brazil. So the, there's this patience and this understanding where you don't just assume that the person in front of you uh, is brown and they're just brown. You go, no, where are you from? Oh, Bangladesh. Okay, cool. You don't just go, they're brown. So yeah. there's something. Whereas, and that's something that's uniquely American. And I think, um, you know, with with the Black Lives Matter movement that's that's come out and the dialogues that that's created in America that have been so necessary um, in kind of in in speaking up about who are you? Who are the American people? What are you made up of? Like, what are all of the different things and who are the people we need to care for um, and look out for? And, and it's been this, it's been this really interesting, like um, evolution that's happened in the U S lately in terms of identity and like the cultural identity of individuals in the U S you know, your, your sister, in my opinion, should not say like, just accept that, when someone calls her white because she's more than she's, she's, she's white. Yeah. But even white people shouldn't just say like, yeah, I'm white. They can say like, give a shit. And you can say like, I'm actually Georgian. Like I'm seven generations from Georgia or no, I'm actually Irish German or like, no, I'm actually, you know, finish whatever. And take a minute and, and, you know, understand where, where you come from. And I think that humanizes people a lot more because it takes it to a deeper level. All of a sudden, you know, you're not just like, a top level, whatever colors in front of your face. You know what I mean? You're, you become a story and, uh, and that's something way more beautiful. Absolutely. I, I completely agree. Which is why like, I'm, I'm impressed that even at such a young age that she's like making her position clear. Like I am half white, but I'm also Palestinian and that's important to me. And that's a part of who I am. And I want that to be recognized. And I think that that's, really cool to to just to observe a young girl kind of asserting her identity it's it's very impressive although I would never say that to her because she would probably like have like you know you know how like little just like a preteen just like you try to compliment them and it just it never goes well they're just like so you think I'm weird it's like nope literally just complimenting you but uh <laughs> okay no but that's but beautiful I, you're right that's like super empowering to see I'm like I'm really that makes me hopeful for like the next generation of 
of kids that will that will tell their own story rather than have people label them. Exactly. And you kind of, you know, as you, you have an, an air of Baba, so I, I feel like you'll get this. My mom will always say like, uh, I, I worry that my grandkids or my great grandkids are not going to feel connected to their heritage. And I think it was a really special moment for my mom to see her granddaughter be like singing that Demi Felicini song and making TikToks <laughs> using it. Like it, I could see that it genuinely made my mom feel happiness, which again, if you have a Palestinian mom, you know that those moments are very fleeting. Uh, but <laughs> she, she was really fucking excited about it. And I was like, that's so special. That's a really special moment. And I think that, you know, um, heritage and culture and all these things, like, as you get older, you kind of understand the importance of them and, and the role that they play. And, and I think that, uh, you know, appreciating it and recognizing other people's experiences and their cultures and, and their background is is special. It's important. Yeah, I totally I totally agree. It's and it's a beautiful thing. Because definitely, it's the same. And it's the same with any kind of identifier. You know what I mean? The, the what's what I think is so funny is that the US is really at the forefront of like LGBT conversation internationally. And the idea of like all of these new labels, you know what I mean? Like, uh, like, like pansexual or demisexual or, uh, you know, whatever new amazing labels and gender fluidity conversations they're having most places in the world haven't caught up and most places in the world are not going to catch up for a long time. So how beautiful would that be in America to kind of see that conversation and those nuances evolve past just uh, gender and sexual orientation, but more towards every other aspect of, of their life, even politically. That's actually a really interesting point. And, and yeah, I think that in America, there is this kind of unspoken understanding at this point that gender is a spectrum for most people, obviously not everyone, but you know, we just, we, we, we understand it and we're respectful of it. And, you know, I think it would be really interesting to see that kind of move into other identifying areas, uh, for people and just kind of not seeing things as, like you said, like just this very black and white, um, you know, kind of, perspective that Americans generally have as far as race goes. And I think that we are I, hopefully moving in that direction, especially after the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement. Even on Twitter, I, I, I see these like conversations around people like saying, oh, well, you're like a light skinned black person. And and it's just really interesting to, to hear all the different um, opinions and experiences that people have had. Again, the internet being a really great pay- place to kind of gain perspective on these different experiences that people have because of their race or their their ethnicity it's it it, that's something that I feel like does kind of make me have some you know American pride I guess um is seeing how how receptive we've been to to gender recently in the last few years I know only always hasn't been that way but I think we're making a lot of really important progress right now that hopefully you know becomes kind of global because I don't know how it is in Dubai. I don't know if you know this. I lived there for high school for four years until like about 2006. So it was a much different climate when I lived there. But um, how, what is the climate there more so like are, are people who are part of the LGBTQIA community, is it still a very taboo thing or is it becoming a little bit more common? I mean, 
people are everywhere. You know what I mean? And people who identify in whatever spectrum are all over the world in every country and every city. Um, and, and they're here too. You know what I mean? Like everybody that's in the LGBT spectrum is in Dubai and there's yeah. a lot of spaces for that community here. Um, but the reality is that legally it's still, it's still not accepted, right? It's still illegal in this part of the world in a lot of Gulf countries and Middle Eastern countries. And, and they still have a lot of catching up to do when it comes to that discussion. Um, but, you know, it's interesting because like there's that aspect, it's, it exists, you can see it, you go to parties, like it's not, a, it's not really a, a problem. And I think because it's not a day-to-day problem, people don't, feel the need to like attack it and face it, but it's a huge issue in the region um, and around the world. And I think even diaspora, Middle Easterners who have left the region, who are part of the LGBT community, who even have lived abroad, are still suffering the fact that they might not be accepted in their home countries right now. And that's a dialogue that we need to start picking up on and we need to, and we need to learn from and address, you know, and just because, um, and that's where I think this 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 idea of nuances and these conversations are really really valuable because it's all in the conversation, and and cancel culture is like I I totally understand and I use the expression of like that person's canceled they're done but when we go back to the idea of facilitating conversations on my page and not immediately canceling somebody who says something so shocking and so you know like mind-bogglingly like (laughs) insulting um it's because they don't have those conversations here they don't have a space to have those conversations here people might have a space to exist here but they don't have a space to really exist safely and to have open conversations about identity and so you you really need to to build and foster that um and i think the same thing if we go back like in the u.s you know, yes, I can have a conversation on LGBT, but can I have a conversation to a bunch of Republicans that I'm a, a, a Democrat? Or can I have a conversation to a bunch of Democrats that I support some Republican policies, right? Like literally this binary one or the other space, this everything is right or everything is wrong, like mindset has to, has to shift globally. Um, and the only reason that we ha- can do that is is because we're open-minded enough to put our egos aside and have the conversations that are necessary. Absolutely. And yeah, I completely reject that whole uh, kind of black and white approach to things. Even, you know, I mean, we recently had the, you know, elections and, and I feel like people do really want to be like, you're a Democrat, you're a Republican. Um, But I will be the first to say at the top of my lungs, both parties are very flawed. And um, I think that both sides have done some good things and bad things. And I I don't know, I I just, I think the whole kind of um, idea that being on the far left or left um, leaning is, is what's always right. And it's like, mm, not, not always just because there's a TikTok that I really love where it's like, um, uh, like a democratic, um, what are those aircrafts called? The ones that drop the bombs, but like the, the democratic one is like covered in gay pride flags and there's like smiley faces and they're like, you know, they're dropping the bombs. And then like, you know, then there's a Republican one with like an American flag and it's dropped. It's like, no, yeah. Like they're both kind of fucked. Uh, that that's not, I know that's not like a, the best or happiest sentiment, but it's, it's just reality. I think that there's, there's a lot of flaws in, in, in all political parties, but and most I, of us I exist. And most of us exist somewhere in the middle. 
And that's right. the reality is like, if you go too far in one direction, you'll end up on the other side. Do you know what I mean? Like there are so yeah. many people that were huge Bernie supporters that ended up so far left that they swung right. Cause it's not a line, it's a circle. So, mm-hmm. so, and this goes with everything. Like if you're, you know, you have to be aware of the fact that humans are beautiful, like intricate, complex, colorful, you know, creatures that um, hold a lot of nuance within them and, and within their stories and systems that are designed to be binary just won't, won't work with us, you know? Absolutely. And yeah, that's why I'm saying I'm like, I reject that so completely. And you're, you're, you're totally right. Um, I did want to, before we, we talk, um, cause I do want to talk to you about Wamina, Wamina, I now I'm like so conscious of how I'm, I'm saying. Sorry. <laughs> no, 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 it's not your fault. This is this is my, a personal problem that I am now experiencing. This has nothing to do with you. I'm just like when I try to overly like fixate on something, I, I start to question myself. But I did want to ask, you know, kind of growing up in this third culture environment, was there a culture that you felt more connected to growing up? Um, you know, it fluctuates, um, and it depends. I think. I really felt closest to the Lebanese side when I was when I was really younger, just because my household was very, very Arab dominant. And then, you know, growing up, um, I felt more and more Parisian. Um, And actually, I didn't I didn't feel as close to my Lebanese or my American sides. I knew they were a very strong part of my identity, but I would describe myself as a Parisian because I wasn't I wasn't even French because I didn't even grow up listening to like the French songs or French, I wouldn't watch all the same French TV shows. And and I went to American schooling. So I didn't learn the same French history that everybody else would learn. I would learn American history or like world, quote unquote, world history. Um, So I was very Parisian in that I was, it was a metropolitan city. I was a mix of everything. And then when I came to Dubai, um, I was very American for the Arabs here. And I wasn't, I definitely wasn't Arab enough, but over time, I was really embracing um, both the the Arab side and the Lebanese side and taking the best of the cultures that I relate to, taking the bits of Lebanese culture that I very much value and appreciate the generosity and the resilience and the and the 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 pride um, and the the artistry that comes from Lebanese culture and then embracing the parts of American culture that I thought you know spoke for me, the fact that I'm outspoken and that I'm artistic and um, the fact that that I can creatively adapt that to business, like oh, however, um, you know, how, however I want to communicate what I have in my mind usually stems from a place of like Americanisms, right? Because I, I can have these dialogues predominantly in English, uh, but I can have these conversations with a, a great understanding of multiple sides of the story and um, and a lot of different opinions. And I know how to how to accept and understand not just the Western perspective, but also the the Arab perspective. And that's definitely an American thing that, that I learned. Um, so, I mean, yeah, growing up, there wasn't uh, early, early days was probably Lebanese, but that was the food I ate. Uh, yeah. 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 Were Arabic classes. I didn't have American classes at home. I had Lebanese classes. Yeah. Um, but, but it's definitely evolved. I don't, I don't click with the, uh, with only one at this point. Yeah. And, and I did want to ask just because like, I'm, I'm interested in knowing, like, was it, 
did you have open conversations with your parents um, in terms of like sexuality or sex education? Was that something that was brought up during your childhood? Oh my God, absolutely not. Absolutely not. With my my dad. Oh my goodness. Of course not. You know, what was hilarious is the, is, is I tried. Um, (laughs) And my dad always tells this story. It's one of his favorite stories of like my life that he repeats in the most uncomfortable situations, but I'm putting it out (laughs) on the internet right now. And it's when I was four years old, um, I literally like, I walked up to my dad and I just said, okay, we need to have a talk four years old. Like I wasn't even a fully functioning toddler. And I was like, we need to have a talk uh, right now. You need to tell me how babies are made. Like where (laughs) did we come from? Like, what is, what the heck is happening? Like, how am I here? And, uh, and he just thought that was the most adorable thing. And he kind of like, he said, okay, took it very seriously, like kicked everyone out of the room and just sat down one-on-one me and him. And he told me, you know, uh, he goes, well, Baba, you know, when a man and a woman, they love each other very much, <laughs> uh, you know, they uh, decide to get married and um, they go to the parents of the woman to ask for her father's. Oh, my God. To get married. I know. <laughs> That's amazing. He goes, and then when the father gives his approval, they go to the house of the man to get the approval of his family. And then when the family of the man approves, they go to the head of the religious <laughs> sect and that man will give his approval. And I love how men are the ones that always give approval. Right, right. And he goes, and then when everyone has agreed, they will decide to get married and they get married in a beautiful ceremony together. And then the night that they are together, you know, and then he explained like very scientifically, like the man and the woman, you know, uh, spend an evening together. And the man basically puts his seed in the woman and they decide, you know, and like, they, they, their love or whatever, like creates this baby. Okay. And in her stomach, and then she grows the baby for nine months. And then like, she goes and pops the baby out in the hospital and he gets like really scientific and technical. And I'm like, sh- I'm shocked. At yeah. this. I'm like, what? That's a, that's a lot for a four-year-old to take in. I was floored. And then at the end he goes, except you, you, by a bird by one stork baba you were dropped like this on my window and i decided to accept you and i wow crying and i was like because when i walked in i told him like you're telling me how babies are made and i don't want to hear any of this like storks brought the baby type of story like i know there's something more to that so he gave me that spiel and then was like not you the stork brought you and i cried and then i knew he was joking but i still cried um uh, so that was the extent of like any sort of sex ed conversations with, with the Arab side. And the American side was my mom was very open. If I ever asked her anything about right. anything, she was open. She wouldn't bring it up. I think she tried and I was not sexually active at the time. And I was just like, oh my God, mom, ew, no, stop it. Like, yeah, I don't yeah, know about this. And she's like, I don't know. Well, you know, you're at the age where maybe you're exploring. And I was like, ew, disgusting. No, not happening. <laughs> um, but bless her because she just wanted to be there for me if, if I ever needed it. And that, that she was, you know, when, when I got older and I, and I was having those conversations, um, she's the person I have those conversations with. 
Um, yeah, I, I would definitely that that would have been my guess. But also the Baba story is incredible um, and amazing. And your impression of him <laughs> did make me think of my own father. I was I was like, who are you? Are you my Baba? Like, I'm not like exaggerating. He actually sounds like that. I, like I, I oh I believe you because that sounds like my dad. Like you are like I, I literally was like that's a ten out of ten impersonation of an Arab father. Um, just like even the 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 pausing and and the the emphasis on the random like yeah I'm like no you're my dad you're my dad now uh, I don't know if you're aware of it. I don't impersonate him. I literally embody him. His spirit yeah, you, comes through me when I, when I pretend. <laughs> you're like, you're like, I know I am my father. Um, but no, it's, it's just really interesting to me though, that his explanation, you know, had so much to do with asking all of these men, different men for, for their permission, which here's the thing about uh, Arab Babas that I love. Like I don't th- and even Arab moms, like I don't think they realize how much internalized misogyny exists in their in their lives or their perceptions of things but like you can't even like be mad at them for it because it's like this is the environment you are raised in like you are simply a product of your environment like you don't you know what I mean like I don't I, I don't think there's any harm linked to it or that no. they, they yeah no not at all like because totally right. I mean like even you know my 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 mom and dad, I would say, are not super Arab, but like at the end of the day, they're they were born and raised in Palestine and lived in the Middle East for a very long time. So they'll say things sometimes, and I'm like, "What are you even saying to me? Like you've lived in America for almost forty years. Like what are these words that are coming out of your mouth?" And I'm like, "But this is the reality that they were raised in. This was the norm that they were raised in. So they just kind of." That's how they view things. That's how they see things. They don't see the problem in it. Whereas where you were telling me that story the whole time, I was like, literally everything comes back to a man. Everything comes back to a man. But that's not how, you know, my mom or my dad would see that story at all. No, and it and it's phenomenal because having gone into, you know, uh, the feminist movement, especially in this region, I, well, I have to face, obviously, a lot of babas, a lot of people's babas um, yeah. in the work that I do. And... And when I talk to my dad about what I do, he kind of, he doesn't get it because he's one, he can, he doesn't, like you said, it's internalized misogyny. So also growing up, yes, I had to ask for his permission, a man's permission, a man's like approval, or like a man had to be with me at every step of the way. But at the same time, he's looking, he's like, you can be the next secretary general of the UN. You're going to be better than me, more impressive than me at a younger age, because you're a woman, you can do it. I believe in you. Like, He's the most supportive, like human on the planet. And he's, and he's got my back and believes in me so much. And he believes in also that the the womanhood that I have is, you know, going to help me succeed in my life. And yet, and yet, you know, there's always this line that, that shouldn't be crossed where with certain things, you know, I still need either his approval or another sort of patriarchal figure's approval for, for a moment in my life. Poor guy though. I have, I have, I've put him through the ringer, you know, because I just, <laughs> I don't, I don't really play that game. And so from a or very young age, you know, I had boyfriends and, and, uh, and he, I would tell him, 
you know, I didn't tell him everything that that meant, you know, I didn't tell him what it meant if I had a boyfriend or, or details, but I would just say I had a boyfriend and I used to have a lot of boyfriends because I would date a guy for like three weeks or like a month, like <laughs> not even a real boyfriend, not a real relationship, especially in the earlier years. And I would just tell him because I wanted him to know that when I get older, like I'm not playing this game with you. Like I'm not going to do what 99% of Arab women do, which is hide their realities and their relationships, you know, behind their backs and, and basically show up magically and say, I found a man I want to marry, you know, and I've never met him before um, when they've been secretly dating for six months or a year or multiple years and, uh, and say they're going on holidays with their friends, but really they're going on a holiday with their, with their boyfriend or tell their friend to cover for them for a night. Cause they're supposed to be sleeping at that person. I mean, maybe I did that once, but like, I, you know, I, I knew that as I would get older, I really wasn't going to be playing that game with him. And, and I knew at a really young age that I didn't totally buy into this patriarchy thing. So I was just like, I better, I better, better wear you down now. And, uh, and you're really planning for the future. Like, I'm like, damn, I'm like, I wish I thought ahead that far in advance. I'm like, I, I feel personally attacked by everything you're saying. I'm like, cause I did all of those things when in reality, like you're saying, no, 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 but I, I think this is a really important point to make because a lot of feedback I get from people, or I guess a lot of, um, comments I get is like, how do you live alone? How do you do this? How do you do that? And I'm just like, you, you make your position clear. And I think I, I wish I would have started doing that at a younger age, because I also think it helps to foster um, a healthier relationship with your parents, because you can't have a healthy relationship with someone when you're lying to them constantly. Like that's not, that's not great as far as relationships go, generally speaking. And that also goes you know, with your parents as well, that's still a relationship. It might not be a romantic relationship, but like, you know, you shouldn't lie to someone that you love and that you, you know, want to have this deep relationship with. And I really think that we as Arab or or, or women who have Arab parents, we're always really worried about letting them down because there are all of these expectations, which that's not our fault. But at the end of the day, I think that a lot of us would be surprised to see that we can wear them down. Like, you know what I mean? Like they, they, they do want us to be happy. They just might not understand that what makes us, what makes us happy might not be what they, you know, need to be happy or what they envision for us. But like, I think that that is a conversation that can be had and obviously, you know, test the waters out. Um, That's so important. Yeah. That's yeah. But like we can give, we can give this advice. But the reality is that you got to test the waters. And and, yeah. and I think regardless of what happens, the earlier uh, I was, you know, um, the, the woman who runs Wamina beside me, her name's Amira. She's an amazing woman. And the other day we asked her, what, what advice would she give to her 13 year old self? And she said, rebel earlier. And the reason is that you, you do to a certain extent want to, to really think about First of all, like think of the person in front of you, not just like, oh, my God, it's my Baba and this is what he thinks or this is my mom and look how conservative she is. But you really want to understand, like, what were the situation? What was the situation that they grew up in? What are the preconceptions that they have? How shattering to their worldview is what I'm about to say, you know, going to be like, how how disruptive is this really? And you can start small. You have to be strategic about it. But but feel it out, because I have friends in their 30s who you know, never brought a man home. And the first person that they bring home is a man that they're like, 
we want to get married. We're not engaged yet, but we want to get married. And they might be in their thirties, but their parents react so dramatically and, yeah. and, and we'll kick them out of the house or we'll stop talking to them for a year. And to me, that, that says a few things. The first is that all of us, myself included, no matter how much early scheming I did, um, we <laughs> want to please. We do want to please our parents and we want to please mm-hmm. our culture and we want to please our society and we want to live up to the expectations set of us. So, you know, we can only we can only do our best at that at these early years. And and even I would would try to be as transparent with my dad as possible. And that meant that I had to work on it for three years to get what I wanted instead of just like doing it and shattering his heart in that moment. But the other thing is that if you pretend to be someone you're not to please them and you know you're not that person early, if you know that you're not the person that they're expecting you to be and you know you're unhappy with these expectations set on you, then actively start trying to broaden their minds as to who you are and 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 how you might want to live in the future. Start doing it slowly and early on because if you keep playing that game and then one day you're like, I don't want to play this game anymore. I give zero fucks. Here me my boyfriend. And they're like, boyfriend? Hell no. What do you mean? Who's corrupted you? The devil is within you. What is this witchcraft? You know, like oh my God. <laughs> up until this point. So, so they're going to fight back just as aggressively. And, and that's where I'm like, you know, and I also want to give credit to my sister who really wore my dad down early on and my brother who wore him down too. Um, because, because by the time that the baby came around, you know, like I could, I had dealt with my own specific limitations with him that I had to navigate, but my sister really had to fight against a lot of like very strong rules and regulations. And she did so in a much more, I would say aggressive manner. Um, but he thinks that she's like the strongest human on the planet now uh, because it all worked out for the best. Um, you know, but when when she wanted to study in the U.S. and he goes, never in my life will you go study in America. She's like, well, I'm doing it. You know, like I've got my passport. Uh, my friend's going to help me pay. I got a scholarship to college. Like you don't actually have a say in this. You're going to lose me. He's like okay, never mind. I love you, you know, or he was like angry yeah. for like a couple weeks. And then he like warmed up like, okay, well, if you have figured this out, it's actually impressive and good for you. And so she, she did, I never did that. I never did that kind of a dramatic, like I'm doing it, whether you like it or not. I never, I never really like had well, kind of a, 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 a I, but I think that the, that's also a really important point that you made. And like, you literally took the words out of my mouth. Cause I was going to say, it's important to keep in mind that I have five older siblings, four of which are females who are very strong-minded and much more rebellious than I could ever dream to be. So they really did most of the work for me. I just kind of like showed up and was like, sup, like this is what I'm doing. But like, as far as you're saying, like you, you, it's important to kind of feel it out, but it's also, I think another big part of it is a lot of it comes from from I think with Arab parents like they're worried about you it's like a lot of worrying this like really is when you're a girl in an Arab household like your parents do lay in bed and probably fucking worry about you like all the time for no reason like nothing is even happening and they're just really fucking worried all the time and I think it's because they realize that the world is a terrible place especially for women Um, but they just you know maybe don't do a great job articulating that so it comes out in these different controlling ways Um, but 
when I told my parents, Hey, I'm moving out. My mom was like, whatever, like that's annoying, but like, that's fine. Like she didn't even like, there was no argument to be had. She was like, okay, whatever. Like, I guess you're doing this. My dad wasn't like, he was just kind of like, why would you want to do this? Why would you want to do this? Like he just could not fathom the idea of why I would want to leave the luxury of my home. Cause that's how he viewed it. He's like, you're living a very privileged life. You live at home. You don't have to worry about paying for anything. Like you live with your parents. Like we love you. Like why would you want to remove yourself from this? And I, I was very honest with him and I was like, I need my own space. Yeah. I need my own space to exist, not because I want to party or, you know, have sex with a bunch of guys. I simply need my own space. And because for years I've showed my dad my personality, which I I do need a lot of personal space. I, I can be very introverted. It's something that I really crave and need. And he made that connection. And he was like, I mean, he didn't say this, but he was basically like, oh, shit, like, you know, like this adds up like this, this adds up. Like she's not doing this to hurt me. She's doing this because she is now a grown adult version of even that teenage nor that I knew who used to sit in her room and listen to music because not because she hates everyone, but because that's something that she craves and needs. And he respected that. And he was like, all right, fine. And, and in fact, like you were saying about your dad, like it makes over time, I think it can make your parent have a little bit more respect for you because my dad is like, oh shit, like you can take care of yourself. Like you're good. Like I did a good job raising you where you are a fully functioning adult woman who does not need assistance because you can fucking handle your shit because I raised you that way. And I think it's like, it's, it's, it is this kind of nice moment where they're like, maybe this isn't what they wanted, but it's a great way for them to feel proud as a parent. Like, yes, maybe you're doing something that if we lived in Palestine would bring great shame to our family, but we don't live in Palestine. And also I'm actually pretty proud of you because you're, you're doing something that you strongly believe in and you're making it happen. Like you are making shit happen on your own. And I think that again, test the waters, but I just really think that a lot of times we will be surprised by how flexible our parents are willing to be if we try to communicate to them in a way that, like you said, we have to factor in these things like their upbringing. What, what, what kind of lifestyle did they have? Who were their parents? Like, where did they live? Like, those are all really important things to factor in because they are human beings at the end of the day who are influenced by these external factors. And I think that once we kind of take that into consideration and, and try to show parts of ourselves and, and kind of warm them up to the idea of, you know, what it is that you want or want to do, I don't think it's always going to be great, but I think that it's something worth investigating. Yeah, exactly. Just play, just play it smart. You know, I think one my, one of my friends who, who I told you like always played by the rules when she brought that guy home and, and it kind of shocked the family because she's always been the, you know, follower of the, of the family expectations and the rules and like the golden child. And, and it shocked them so much she kind of like moved to a new country and lived with him. It was like a lot in one go. Yeah. And we always look at it like, mm, maybe you should have, maybe you should have lied a little bit. Like maybe you could have, you could have just, yeah. you know, you probably could have gotten away with, I want to move to a new country um, where I know where I have friends and, and I'm going to get a job. And they probably, that would have been difficult, but they would have eventually warmed up to it and gotten been okay with it. And then once you're there, you open them up to the idea of like, now there's a person in my life and then, right. you know, test the waters. And then it's like, now I'm living with that person, you know, but, but that's in retrospect. And again, that's for that specific like 
family and expectation. And what was interesting was she made both her, because I was talking to her through this. So I also made the mistake of being like, oh, well, they were cool with your brother doing all this stuff that they'll be cool with you doing it. And it's very important when we're talking about Arab culture to understand not just the hypocrisy of my parents may have done it, but I can't do it. Uh, but the the double standards on 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 male children and female children. So like, just because my brother did it does not mean that they're going to be cool with me doing it. And uh, like, no, why? He's a boy. You know, my dad did not bat an eyelash when my brother wanted to go study in the U.S. My dad did not bat an eyelash. My brother lived in his own apartment. My dad flipped out when my sister wanted to study in the U.S. When I wanted to get my own apartment, there was a three year like negotiation <laughs> debate. It ended up being like a family home that nobody was in that I could kind of stay in on my own. So there was like this, you know, there was a debate and a negotiation and a whole thing. And um, what ended up happening when I was in Dubai, this reminds me like when I first moved to the UAE was, was uh, eight years ago now. And, and five years ago, I moved to Dubai and uh, I wanted to live in my own apartment. I didn't want to live in a family house anymore. I didn't want to compromise my space with anybody or for anybody. I just wanted a small apartment from a damn self. Okay. Yeah. And uh, instead of asking permission, I realized a lot of times, specifically with my father, and I think with with more Arab dads than we give credit for, you don't want to ask for permission. You want to ask for forgiveness. And as, as women in the Middle East, very often we ask for permission. We're told to ask for permission. We shouldn't. We should ask for forgiveness. And that just means just do it. Take, right. take ownership, take the power. And I literally found an apartment, try, rented it. And the whole thing of renting it was like the guy... I was refused. First of all, I was refused the rental because I was a single woman in this country. Wow. With this, uh, with the area that I live in, they were saying we don't allow singles to rent. And I was like, that's a lie because I have male friends that live in this building that live alone. So you do rent to singles. They go, yes, well, we don't rent to single women. And I was like, why? And they were like, well, you know, because of who you might be entertaining there. And I was like, first of all, that's none of your damn business. Second of all, if anything, they're entertaining me. Third of all, <laughs> I don't think like this is this is none of my business. But if you are telling me that like I have less privilege than a than a than a man that lives in this building that's Western, but I'm from this country or my passport is from this country, and I don't have the right to live in the building that I so choose, like you are so sorely mistaken, and I'm gonna teach you about it. And I was like, are you telling me that? that I've come back to this country and I've done all the work for women and women's rights. And then I'm going to be stopped for moving into where I want because I'm a woman. That's not happening. And they're like, okay, well maybe we can make an exception if you get permission from your father, if you get a written letter. Oh, is this real life? Is this, 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 real, this is real life. A leasing office asked you for permission from your father. Yes. And by the way, in this country, um, in a, in a lot of places you still need, um, as a, as a sponsored spouse, if you're here and your husband's working here, you need a permission from your husband to, to, to work in this company, which is, I mean, most husbands are very nice and they'll say yes, but they're like, it's still part of the process, unfortunately. And so they wow. still need permission, written permission from your father. And the whole point was that I was doing it. Mm-hmm. Without telling my dad because I'm like I'm not gonna ask him. He's gonna say no. I'm just gonna do right. it. And then once it's done, I'm gonna furnish it, make it all nice, and then I'm gonna tell him, surprise! I have an apartment. It's not too far from like where you live, and um, you know it's done already. So you're gonna have to accept it. And you know, please love me anyway. 
So that was my plan. And they were ruining my plan by making me ask for a letter. So I was like, no, I'm not going to have a letter. Are you telling me that like my value is only as much as like the man in my family will like sign off on? Are you telling me? And then I got so like heavy, angry feminist that the guy, he was like, he was shocked. And this is a Khaliji Emirati guy in a full, you know, dishdashi like white robe. And he was probably like, "This is not what I expected to happen today." <laughs> I gave him a lecture. I was like, "Are you telling me that your sister or your mother is not as worthy of as you are to rent their own place that they can make their own decisions for their life? Are you telling me that you are seriously more responsible than your mother right now?" He's like, "What? No, that's not what I'm saying." I'm like, "Exactly. <laughs> what are you asking me? You know, who's will be maybe somebody's mother one day?" that I need to bother. And he just started like freaking out, but laughing. And he's like, I've never had this conversation. Let me make a phone call to my supervisor. And his supervisor was uh, not Imarati. His supervisor was an Egyptian man. And Egyptians are a bit more like relaxed. So a bit For more sure. in the way they talk and stuff. So I literally went off on that dude. And I was like, you don't know what he told me. And I'm supposed to ask my dad. And you guys should Google me because you should see the work I do for women. This is insulting to the women of the country of the United Arab Emirates that you are even suggesting that I must need approval. And so I like, I went ham and, uh, and the guy was laughing so hard. He's like, all right, all right, we'll waive the, the need, you know, and it's totally fine. And so I ended up getting the apartment and I like, I, I paid a few months in advance and then I got all this like furniture from stores that my brother had had and I like did it all nights. And then I surprised my dad with it. And he was like, what the hell is this? Like I made sure it was after a family dinner at a restaurant. <laughs> you know, like, you know, he was like softened up. I was like, I got a surprise for you. And he walked in. He's like, what is this? I'm like, it's my apartment. He's like, why? No. What do you mean? what are you going to do? And I was like, well, you know, I just needed my own space. I come here a lot for work and I don't want to keep staying in the family house. And I have friends and they bother people. And, you know, and at the time I had a boyfriend and I was like, well, you know, I have a boyfriend and he keeps asking me to stay at his house, but you know, that's illegal, right? So I would never want to dishonor the family name by staying at his house. So I thought I would just stay at my house you know, and, and in my own space. And, you know, he's like, Oh, of course I would never want you to break the law. Okay. Yes, yes. It's fine. It's fine. And, it, it, it like it was this really weird orchestrated like multi-month like <laughs> scheme I had to just move out of the fucking house. Again, you are a much more patient and kind person than I am because this whole time I'm like, I, I'm, I'm such an asshole. I was just like, hey, I have an apartment. Bye. And my dad was like, what the fuck? And I was like, yeah, sorry, Baba. Uh, like, I, I just literally was like, hey, I had an idea. Like, it literally was like, I thought one day I was like, I want to move out. And then like the next day I started looking at apartments and then I looked at them and then I was like, I talked to my sister as I was like, Hey, I'm going to do this. And I was like, Oh, should I tell mom and dad first? And I was like, nah, I'm just going to fucking do it. And they're just going to, we essentially did the same thing, but just you did it in a much more thoughtful way. I just did it in like an asshole way where I was like, I, I, I had a thought and I did it and now I'm going to tell my parents about it. But I, I mean, I had the same story as you, if I didn't have to jump through these ridiculous bureaucratic misogynistic who, Oh, wait, I have a question. Is it actually, I don't know if you're being hyperbolic, but is it actually a crime in the United Arab Emirates for a woman to spend the night at a man's house? Uh, it was until about a month ago. Yeah, it was, uh, not, not a one, not even a woman to spend a night at a man's house. It was no no couple can sleep together unless they're married. So 
you can't even share, like you can't even have a roommate of the opposite sex. You couldn't, it, by law, you technically could not share a hotel room with anyone that you are not legally married to. Um, and and that was that was the case until a month ago. And then they just passed a whole bunch of sweeping laws that were like very modern in, in the eyes of this culture um, that uh, made it OK all of a sudden, you know. But if if I don't know if I wanted to do like a little staycation in one of the other Emirates and take a hotel by the beach with my boyfriend, I was breaking the law. And and if I wow. spend the night at my guy friend's house, uh, I was breaking the law. If I was sleeping over at my girlfriend's house who has a brother in that house. I was breaking the law. So there's, you know, an Arab man, a thousand percent made all of those laws. Of course, <laughs> Arab men make all the laws in the Middle East. There's no Arab. I know, but I'm like, that is the most Arab man law to ever make. Like you can't spend the night at someone's house if they have a brother. <laughs> but this is what's hilarious is that a lot of the places, a lot, a, this entire region has super hypocritical rules that are only enforced when convenient. So essentially you know, I've had friends here and I'm sorry to break it to anybody that's listening in the UAE, but like I've had friends that are men and women that have been roommates for years or that have lived with their partner, their spouse, their boyfriend, unmarried for years. And it's not an issue. It's only an issue if they want to make it an issue. Right. And, and there are multiple ways they can make it an issue. If for whatever reason you've done something else that somebody considers bad and they can't really catch you on it, they want to catch you on something else. They can always claim like, Oh, I know all this person is living with their partner unmarried. Um, or maybe your neighbors might be, you know, your neighbors might be angry at you and want to get, get at you for something. They can actually report you. They can legally report you um, and say, I think that there's a couple that's living unmarried in the, in the property next to me. Uh, so there's a lot of that stuff. There was even, I mean, recently again, like now, uh, drinking without a license, not a, an age license. I mean, here you used to have a legal requirement to register for an alcohol license, um, in order to consume alcohol in the country. Uh, and, and certain, not all restaurants serve alcohol. So only restaurants in hotels were given alcohol licenses to serve alcohol. So, there are two licenses needed, one on behalf of the company that's serving the alcohol and one on behalf of the consumer who's consuming the alcohol. But Muslims weren't given those licenses. So that's one. Uh, and second of all, like you didn't want to be seen as maybe haram or you're a tourist and you don't have time to get an alcohol license when you're coming for a week to Dubai. So you're still going to go to the club. You're still going to go to the hotel. You're still going to go to the day, day club at the beach. And you're still going to drink. You're going to drink on your Emirates flight. But you didn't know that that was illegal the entire time. And they're not going to arrest you unless they need to arrest you. So maybe you're being drunk and belligerent, right? At which, and, you're, and you're hassling, really. You're, you're, for some reason, you're being belligerent on the side of the street, which you really shouldn't be. And they're like, oh, you were consuming alcohol. And you're like, yeah, so we're 150 other people at this club. And they're like, right, but you're the only one being belligerent. So now I'm going to arrest you for it, you know, or uh, or whatever. So they'll only really lock you. They, they will have these rules in place in lots of different countries in the Middle East that are only enforced when is when is convenient and targeting a specific type of person. That's what I was going to say. I think it's important to also consider that it is typically targeting a specific type of person who and I and I was just talking about this on Instagram the other day because um and the, the, I can only speak of my personal experience. I also lived in the Emirates a very long time ago. I, I I don't know what the climate is like now, but when I lived there, I I I really hated it. 
not like I was like waking up every day and crying, but like I hated it in the sense there was definitely um, a, a hierarchy that was very apparent to everyone and different different types of people were treated different ways in a way that it was, it was undeniable. I don't know what it's like now, but it was like just so apparent. No one was embarrassed by it. Like if you're a driver, like you're a piece of shit basically. Um, and so yeah, that was, that, that was definitely really hard for me to overcome. I I've, I've heard that it's not as bad anymore, but I also think that it was just made very clear to me that I would be able to get away with certain things because I'm American, not because I'm Palestinian, not because I'm Arab, but because I'm American, perhaps if I were in a situation that would help me in some way, shape or form. Um, and yes. people were, yes. I'm sorry. I was going to say yes, yes and no. So there are certain ways where that plays out. So for example, now as, as of a month ago, you don't need a license to consume alcohol anymore. You're not breaking the law if you consume alcohol anymore. And another one that plays into this is you used to not be allowed to be served alcohol at a bar if you were wearing traditional national dress. Essentially, if you look like an Arab, if you look like a Khaliji wearing traditional white robes, you cannot be served a visibly alcoholic beverage. You cannot be seen in an environment that serves alcohol. They won't let you in the club, for example, right? Because... But if you're the same person, but you dress Western, you're fine. Because if anything happens, you're dressed Western, you're not kind of tainting the reputation. So if you, uh, as Noor, were here, you would be treated very differently, but you would still have certain things that are expected of you because you're wearing right. a hijab as opposed to not, not wearing a hijab. And interesting. And and that's there's there's this there's this like these weird little judgments. I think it's definitely much better than when you were here. There is Probably, still, yeah. I mean, there is still like overt classism and classism that is, you know, linked to ethnicity very often. So certain uh, nationalities might be more dominant in a certain like industry or in a certain type of job position. So drivers might be from one certain area or like service uh, employees are from other places, but it's not it's not as um it's not as obvious as it was 20 years ago, right? So now, now things are a lot more gray and everyone takes pride in, in kind of being part of lots of different uh, jobs and having lots of, like everyone has a different reason to be in Dubai. It's a lot more mixed. It's a lot more integrated. Um, there's still, there are still some like deep cultural separations um, and definitely judgment. But the thing about the UAE is it's gotten the population. If you look at, if you go on Wikipedia, guys, okay, go on Wikipedia <laughs> and look at the population growth of the United Arab Emirates in the last 40 years or 30 years. Okay. And you will see it legit like doubles every year. The population just booms. And that's because there's only like 2 million nationals, but the but 80% of the population are from other places in the world. And there's only 2 million locals. It's a really, it's a really small, po like national population. So everybody that's here and they keep growing and bringing more and more and more and more and more people. And we have a 12 lane highway that's like right down the center of Dubai. 12 lanes is a ridiculous amount of lanes for the main artery road in any city. Like there's not a single road on Manhattan that has that, right? But that's insane. That's like wild to me. Like I can't even fathom. Like I, I'm having an anxiety attack just thinking about driving on a 12 lane highway. Because they're not building for the city that there is now or the population there is now. They are building for the population that they want 
40 years from now. Right. Well, they want a population that is quadruple the size of what we are now. And so they're building with that in advance. And in order to get the population there, they have to have people from all over the world flocking to live here. And the more people that come here, the more diverse it is, the more international it is. Honestly, the more tolerant it has to then become. Absolutely. And I think, obviously, like there, there is racism that exists everywhere. I mean, there is racism in America. I will not deny it. I just, I think what was so shocking to me is how like, how open people were about it. Like, it, you know what I mean? It was just very acceptable to like, say these things. And I was like, very, there was a culture shock that I experienced when I lived there where I was like, wait, what? Like, I remember a girl telling me that, uh, like, I think I've actually said this on my podcast before, but we were having lunch at school and she, we, I, the school was one of the schools I went to was like, um, segregated. So women were alone and, and boys were alone. And so the girls would take off their shelas or their headscarf during like lunchtime and they would just be eating their lunch. And I remember seeing like a male gardener walking by. So I was like, Oh, Hey girls, like there is a male gardener. Uh, for those of you who don't know, most Muslim women cover their hair in front of men um, that are not related to them by blood. So I was like, oh, heads up, you know, there's a guy over there. And this girl was like, that's not a man. That's a gardener. Yeah. And I was like, but that what the person fuck? was very, is first of all, very badly educated. Like I, I, I fear for whatever home environment that person grew up in. Um, and I think that definitely is, there, that's, it, that's not even that's not even racism. That is straight up classism to them. That is right. that, that's a mentality of you know a, you are better. You being uh, Arab, for example, are better than non Arabs. Or right. you as a certain Arab, so maybe a Gulf Arab might be better in your own mind than a Levant Arab or a North African Arab. And and I would even say like that. I mean, that exists like all over the place. If you're in the States and if people expect that, like you're, if you're in California, they're like, oh, your gardener's going to be Mexican. Like, no, dude, like that's, no, that's not a given. Uh, and, and that's a really weird fucked up way to, to think. Right. And so I, I feel like this mentality is all over the place. And it definitely used to be w- very probably prevalent in the Gulf when they had just hit the oil boom and there's this superiority complex, but it's not, it's not that much anymore. There, yeah. And, and it's much more nuanced again. You know, it's much more nuanced where on one, on one end, you know, uh, they idolize Western Westerners, Westerners right. better in their minds, you know, but right. it's, it's weird because I actually have to talk a lot to local Emiratis about the fact that they, that they have this Western superiority complex where they think that all of the answers are going to be given to them by you know, consultants uh, from England or from Germany or from yeah. the US. And the reality is, no, you have the talent now. Like this country's been around long enough. This region's been awake and, and 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 you know, has been awake and educated and has had the same access to these resources for long enough that you have the talent, the, the mindset, the innovation mindset within your populations here that, you know, you're just as good as as anybody else and the same goes for people from the east so like if you look down of people from like eastern countries they've actually now like they've had the same internet access the same thing for longer than you they probably have better setup education systems than you so they're going to understand things better than you and there's this respect of of kind of the knowledge um that is that is shared cross culturally it's still a problem as it's a problem everywhere i think but it's what again what i think is phenomenal is like it's 
it's not, it's like a, it's weird because it's like not a straight up racism because there isn't even, it's not as much tied to race or quote unquote race is supposed to be because here, here race isn't the same thing that like Americans think of when you talk about race right here, it's ethnicity and culture because, because race is a fucking construct. And so it's, (laughs) it's more about, um, it's more about people's ethnicities and people's upbringings and people's backgrounds. And there's a lot of first, second generation people that are Filipino that have been born and raised here or Indians that have been born and raised here, whose homes are this country. And people understand that. Whereas 20 to 40 years ago, you really had very, very few people that had been here for that long. And so there was more space to feel that superiority. Whereas now, you know, there, there really isn't that mindset, um, as prevalent as as I think it used to be probably when you were here. Yeah, that and and I I definitely acknowledge that but like it's it just because I have not been back because I have not seen anything like I I still kind of have which I guess is you know I need to do some some personal you know work on that. Yeah, no, I, it, it, it it was very it was very deeply upsetting to me. Like and like and I remember just like I would go home and I'd cry and my parents after that put me in a different school. Cause they were like, okay, well maybe this school wasn't like the right school for her. Like maybe cause there, there, it was predominantly, it was a private school, but I lived in Alain at the time. So yeah. it was not as much of a mixed school. It was a lot of locals and just like a handful of like children's of expats. So and it wasn't think, as diverse. I think that exactly. I think that really speaks to, um, being in places that are very homogenous. So again, mm-hmm. we're talking about like Dubai and Abu Dhabi and the Emirates are very international. But if you go to places in the Emirates where there are very few non-Imaratis within certain like circles or or in or in whatever that society is, um, you know, I'm sure you're gonna see the same. It's I, I went to a before I went to the American school in Paris, it was very the American school was super international. The American university was very international. But I went to a British school for six years before that. And the British school was not very international at the time. The British school was very Anglo, you know, like British. Um, so English, Scottish, Irish, uh, Welsh, uh, Australian. And that was m- a majority of the student body. And then you had this like small little, small little sprinkling, you know, <laughs> maybe a Canadian, maybe one of one American or two, and then like an Arab kid, an Indian kid, and a couple African kids. And you had like, and that was it. And when I was in that school, I think I felt the same thing. I felt very similar things that you felt in your school growing up here, where, you know, the way I would hear kids talking about, well, first of all, about anyone that was non-British. I, I was considered non non-white in that school, right? I was considered like very much Lebanese in that school and very heavily bullied. And so was my brother um, because of because of our heritage and because we didn't fit that like the typical all cookie cutter like British whiteness that 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 was prevalent in that school. And so were any other kids from any other countries. Anyone that was remotely like beige or brown or or black had a really difficult time at that school in the in those years. Um, maybe not everybody, everybody, but a lot of the, a lot of the people that, that represented kind of an alternative, uh, heritage. And, and it was always really shocking to me because I never got it. Kind of like that whole thing I told you about, like, I didn't, I never got 
I never understand these taboos. You know, I never understand why certain subjects right. are are taboos just because they are. Like, I don't buy into that mentality. Or you ask for a man's permission just because you're supposed to. Like, I never ever bought into that from from the youngest of memories I have. I didn't I didn't get that. Um, and and it was the same thing of like you judge somebody because of where they're from or that their skin happens to be a different shade than yours. Like I did not, that did not compute in my mind. And it, the first, like my first experience of like actual racism was at that, that school. And, and it, and it floored me because I was like, what, like, what do you mean? Like, what are you saying right now? Like that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard anybody say is judge or attack somebody because you don't like the fact that they're from this country or this, like what, like, how are you thinking that way? And it's absolutely like, it's shocking and it can be almost traumatizing if that's the first time, if you're a person who thinks that way and you haven't been conditioned to kind of accept the judgment and the prejudices that a lot of other people in that society have. A thousand percent. It was, it was just, it was a very like um, shocking, traumatic, confusing. I was truly boggled. Like I was like, what, what, why would someone not be considered a human? Like I, I was, I really couldn't wrap my head around it, but I will say I did. Um, I went to a few other schools. Eventually I did go to a, a school in Dubai that I think was called like the American school of Dubai. I don't know. Like that's just how schools are named. And I feel like there's like 15 of them, but there's like some small, you know, difference, like American English speaking school of Dubai, like just some weird shit like that. There's but like, um, right, There's like 15 of them in Dubai. There's Dubai American Academy. Yeah. There's Dubai American college or something, American school of Dubai. Like there's a bunch of, there's a bunch of them. You're right. Yeah. And, and that it was, a, it was new at the time and the classrooms were really small, but they were very diverse. And I remember I would commute to school, like, I don't know, like an hour and a half every day, but I was like, I don't even care because like, there's at least no weird classism going on. You know what I mean? Like, like it was much more diverse. So it was much more of an open accepting um, environment. And I was like, okay, I can, I can, I can deal with this. Like I literally was like, I cannot go to the school. Like I can't be around these people. Like I'm the only person who feels this way. And like, as a teenager who just moved to a completely different country, like I simply cannot deal with this. Like, and luckily my parents were receptive to it and they weren't just like, you know, suck it up. They were like, well, shit, you know, and also those schools are fucking expensive. So they're like, yeah, I know we're not going to pay a fuck ton of money for you to go to the school where you're being like traumatized on a daily basis. Like we'll, we'll find a different school for you. Oh, I think it's so beautiful that you at that age were able to speak up for yourself and speak up for what you thought was an absolute, like unacceptable kind of way of being yeah. society to be surrounded by and that you found a better fit within the UAE, you know, for you. And I think definitely once you jump into the internet, you go away from like local private schools in any country and you go towards the international school system, you're creating a much more tolerant and open society for you to thrive in. Yeah. And, and I, I, I kind of grew up going to international schools. So I was very much so exposed to different cultures my whole life. So it was definitely a huge, huge, huge shock for me. And I don't think my parents really understood that that was the type of school it was because it was described as more of an international school. Um, but that was definitely not the reality. I do want, honestly, like, I'm like, you're a guest that like, I feel bad for you. Cause I'm like, I won't shut the fuck up. So I apologize, but <laughs> 
Uh, I, I, I'm really enjoying speaking to you. And I want to learn more about Wamina. Wamina. I'm, I, I, again, I'm just, am I saying it correctly? You are saying it correctly. You've yes. said it like five times and I, you've perfect, perfectly every time. Okay. So how, what, what inspired Wamina? Like I want to kind of learn about how, uh, it, it came to life and, and, and kind of what that process was like. Um, well, listen, there was a lot of really beautiful accidents along the way. And, uh, and uh, the process was always fueled by uh, butterflies in my stomach, basically. Like, I always have this really interesting feeling in the pit of my stomach that tells me I'm on the right path. And I've learned to, like, really f- listen to that and, and, and trust it and, uh, and take very dramatic decisions that other people may not have the, the courage to take just because I'm like, no, this feels right. And that's, that's how I want to go. And, and it's led me to, to where I am. Um, when I first started, you know, the idea at the time was just moving to the UAE because it was, you know, the Middle East has been branded so negatively by the rest of the world. Like the marketing around the Middle East has been shit. Like everyone, they're like, oh my God, you're in the Middle East. That must be horrible. Like, do you have to cover up? Like, do you take camels to school? Like whatever kind of bad PR that this region has gotten um, has been mostly given to us by the West. And Dubai and the UAE have done such a phenomenal job at rebranding the region. Because when you tell someone you're in Dubai, they don't think of the rest of the Middle East. They don't think of it as part of the same place, you know, that Saudi Arabia is in or that like Iraq is in or that Lebanon is in. They just, they're like, oh, Dubai, Dubai, sick, Dubai. It's like started from the bottom. Now we're here. Like that's about Dubai. That's like the hip hop of countries. Like we're so down for that, you know? Um, And, and Dubai was doing a really good PR job in the early 2000s branding itself as this land of opportunity. So growing up in like very traditional France, um, very old school Western Europe mindsets uh, were not very conducive to like startups, innovation, entrepreneurship at that time. And when I graduated from college in 2013 and I was like painting and baking and stuff, I, I just wanted, I just knew I wanted to work for myself and I wanted to start a company and I wasn't necessarily sure what the hell that company was. I just knew I was going to do it in Dubai. Um, because it's such a virgin economy that you can literally come here and build a company that you would not be able to do anywhere. Like very often in Europe, if you want to do something that's out of the norm, that doesn't fit within the standard boxes, what are expected to be um, businesses or a business structure, you know, they'll tell you, why are you doing this here? They'll be like, yeah, okay, why not? Yeah, sure. That sounds weird. Why not go ahead and do it? Here's the licenses, right. That you need for it. And you can mix and match your business licenses to fit your needs. So I was like, cool, Dubai's the place to be at. I'm going to come. I want to be closer to my dad anyway. I want to get closer to my Arab roots. This seems like a good, happy medium. Let's do it. And I'll figure out what I'm going to do once I'm there. And the summer before coming here, I had two very important friends in my life. And one of them was a chef. She had moved to Dubai the year before. And I was thinking, let's let's do something together. Let's make let's do a restaurant type of thing. I'll be the baking. You can do the savory and we'll have like a cool concept store kind of restaurant situation. And, uh, with a second friend of mine, 
we just wanted to work together and and we and I was like I'm moving to Dubai are you down and she goes yeah that sounds great <laughs> that sounds great what are we gonna do I'm like I don't know but we'll make it work let's bash out <laughs> ideas and so we kind of we made an excel sheet of like 30 plus ideas that were that like were everything from a nail salon to like a color me mine to whatever and one of the ideas was an angel investment platform and I hadn't studied finance or worked in finance or anything or wealth management, but I was interested in entrepreneurship. And when she was explaining to me what the fuck an angel investor was, it sounded so freaking cool. She, you know, essentially she's like, yeah, well, an angel investor is someone who invests in an early stage startup and they can put in like $5,000. Like you don't have to invest like hundreds of thousands or millions or even tens of thousands. You just put in like 5K and you're an investor in this business and you can actually like, you're just, you help them. Like you're like part of the team. You like help them with experience, with connections, with like knowledge. And you're like part of that ride and you can do it for like a really small amount of money. And it goes a long way because these are young businesses. And I was like, that's, that sounds fucking cool. Cause like I could probably get 5k from my dad to invest in a business and I know marketing really well. And I could probably, you know, meet like some techies who don't get marketing and I could help them with their branding and their marketing. And like, I could totally do that shit. And that sounds fucking awesome. And yeah, I bet you there's a lot of people that would be willing to do that. Like maybe we can work on financial literacy and like actually help more people give startups the money they need here. And the Silicon Valley thing was really popping off in the States. And um, it was like a hot time for like startup type stuff. So we, we decided to launch an angel network and it wasn't gendered. There was no gender lens. It was just like, we're going to help, you know, some, some investors put money into startups. And what's funny is actually, if you look at our first business plan from the summer of 2013, we assumed that we would be working for a bunch of 50 year old businessmen that that was going to be our target clientele. And the reason is, is because a majority of angel investors are men around the age of 52 in gray suits. Uh, and, and that's just, that was just like a stat. So we were like, well, I guess that's going to be who we're working for. And we were building a company thinking, how are we going to justify being two 23 year olds trying to help people invest when we've never invested and like, <laughs> and they have, but we know about this new kind of investing. That's like way more exciting, more fun, more risky, but has a better return profile. And, um, and basically I, I just, I, I did like a really hyper self-learning like program. Yeah. I just, I read everything. I read everything I could put my fucking hands on for about a year while we were figuring out how to build this business in Dubai. And I, and I became just like a self-taught expert in angel investing over the course of a year. And I got my $5,000 for my family and I put it in a company and, uh, and I was patient X, you know, I was like, okay. And we were getting other people to help us assess the startup. It's not like I was like a great, great at assessing startups. We would hire actual like analysts, but that was the idea. And then right before launching, we were, we were realizing that the men we were having meetings with were looking at us like we were a bunch of, like we were their daughters or that we were interns or we were like their mistresses. Like we looked, we didn't look like people they were going to take seriously and they weren't taking us seriously. And we were trying to figure out how the fuck can we get people to take us seriously as young women? And the answer to that um, came from one of our advisors who said, well, why don't you, 
why don't you just work with women instead? Why don't you just get women to invest? Like, don't women have money to put into startups? And we're like, fuck that. Yeah, actually, that sounds really good. And then we we started talking to more women who could invest and they were way nicer to us. They were like way more understanding. And they were, it was like, we were, they gave us a chance. You know, we had a chance with these women and they didn't have anywhere else to go. So we realized that it was really needed. And then we ran the numbers and we looked up research. And it turns out that women own like 20% of, of the liquidated cash in the region. And they just don't know what to wow. do with it. And so there was like all of this hype about, oh my God, women are this untapped market and let's, let's get women to start investing. And they, they could invest in, in male or female led businesses as they please. But for some reason, people were like so confused at this idea that women were investing. They were like, but where are these women getting their money from? We're like, well, they're working or they inherit it, but like they have money. They're like, wow, I didn't know that women had money. It was like, it was such a weird conversation we'd have even outside the Middle East. Like people were just so surprised. And then, so we did that. This was the business. We changed the name. We called it Wamina. It was this big thing. We got a shit ton of like support. Like I spent $0 on PR and we were getting two articles a month, just about us in massive publications. We were on the BBC within three months of launching. Like it was a huge deal, but it was a terrible business model. And behind the scenes, my co-founder and I were like beefing, like we were on really bad terms and it was a very toxic relationship. And so things just weren't, they, and this, I think every startup founder and every entrepreneur has a version of this story, but like people see the tip of the iceberg. They don't really see all the shit underneath the water that's going on. And people were seeing all the awards and they were seeing all of the, the, the reporting and they were seeing all the investments that we were making, but they weren't really seeing the fact that like the numbers weren't adding up and that a lot of the stats we were going on were not accurately reported. So they weren't, it wasn't really indicative of the environment that we were in. And my co-founder and I had two very different visions for our own lives and for what we wanted to do. And so after about three years of that, my, my co-founder and I, just couldn't handle it anymore. We called it quits. She wanted to go into like the fundraising VC, you know, big money world of startups in the Valley type of thing. And I had completely fallen down the feminist, you know, rabbit hole. <laughs> I growing up in the West and now this is weird for people to think, but like at the time, again, like this is pre me Too movement. So like feminism was a wave that happened in the seventies. So the dialogue around feminism with that, it was over and we had equality. And so you, you're young and you're naive and you don't really realize the prejudices that are against women or the misogyny that still exists. And in creating a women's network, we very much face that full force. And I learned so many dis disturbing details about the state of, of, of women in the world right now, across, across all continents. And I couldn't turn away anymore. Like my passion was about, you know, the plight for gender equality. Like all of a sudden I was like, this is my fucking purpose. Like this is to me such a stupid problem to exist in the world. Like how do people see men and women that differently? I don't understand. Like why can't people just be treated as equals? It's the same with ethnicity and race and social class. Like you just treat someone as human. And I didn't understand how something as silly as gender played such a big role. I was so naive. And 
I really thought I could solve feminism in like 10 years. I was like, done. Like, I'm going <laughs> to focus on this shit. It's going to be easy. Everyone's going to see how silly they've been and the world's going to be a better place. Uh, so when my co-founder bounced, I, I wanted to stay in the Middle East and I wanted to stay focused on women. And I was really proud of what we had built with Wamina, but I wasn't, I, I wasn't, we couldn't, the business model was bad and I didn't like the investment space anymore. And I realized it was like this weird inverted pyramid scheme and it wasn't as like idealized as, as I'd make, made it sound. So it wasn't as like perfect as, as everybody bigs it up to be. So um, really took like three months. My team was really scared for me because I kind of went MIA, but I was just, I was like bunkering down in my mind and trying to recalibrate and figure out what the hell, how I'm going to, how I'm going to create equality, right? How the hell am I going to do it? And what I realized was perceptions, right? So inequality stems from a misconception and, 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 and wrongful perceptions of one party versus another of men towards women of women towards women of people towards women people expect certain things of women that are not the truth and all i had to do was change those perceptions easy done so simple i got it so <laughs> i was like great done great change perceptions that's going to be a fucking slice of cake so how am i going to do that i'm going to confront their perception with an alternate image of a woman. So if you think all Arab women are, uh, are, are, uh, Brown, you're going to see Arab women, all sorts of shades of beige. Or if you think that all Muslims wear a hijab, I'm going to show you Muslims that represent so many different types of aesthetics that you're going to just, your mind's going to be blown. And then you can't think that all Muslims wear hijabs anymore. Like, I'm just going to show you the beautiful, diverse reality that I see every day that represents the reality of women in this day and age in the Middle East. And I'm going to do that through some sick, sick looking content, like some real honest discussions, some beautiful content, some never before seen non-corporatized, you know, just storytelling. And, uh, and that's what I call Wamina 2.0, which is the day we live in today. And, uh, and I came back to my team and I was like, guys, we're going to be a media company. We're going to make beautiful content. We're going to tell incredible stories, nonfiction, because you don't need fiction when the world is this insanely uh, complex and, and wonderful. So who's in it? You know, and some of my team stuck around. Some of my team didn't, uh, which is fine. And we basically like built a team at the time. My media team was two people. I hired two whole people one that would make videos, one that could figure out what we would do with those videos. And, uh, and, and, and then I had one person on marketing who was still around from the entrepreneurial days. And, uh, and, and then, you know, one person who came in and, and helped us on the operational front. And we also conceptualized that on top of the media thing, I never wanted another entrepreneur like me to be misguided the way that I had been misguided. So we created an accelerator and for three years, we've run that accelerator. Um, and so Christina was her name. And Christina um, ended up leading and designing uh, the Womentum Accelerator for Wamina that, that we had going for a few years. And what's amazing about that is it's not just the impact of the accelerator, which was great and amazing for the startups in it, but that we, we turned that accelerator into a documentary series. So it was all still coming back to media. And and we told the stories of all the founders in the accelerators unfiltered 
honestly, uh, with the problems that they're facing and the growth that they were facing and the opportunities and the losses and the struggles and the wins. And, uh, and, and that's the momentum series. It's online right now on our YouTube channel, but we just like redesigned it. And we were on this, like, we're going to do shit that nobody else has done before. Nobody else here has done before. We're going to create media, female focused media that is going to break open the minds of, of women from our region and show them like all the role models that exist around us that they don't even know exist right now, like, because they don't see them. And we want to show them the choices that they have for their lives, that their life is not binary, right? That they don't just have to be married with children and not working or, or a working spinster, that there's all these beautiful nuances and shades of gray, right? That we talk about everything is the spectrum and that they have the power within themselves to take, make a choice anywhere in the spectrum and that they're going to have a, a society and a community of women that are going to back them up in that choice. And, and that's what we turned Wamina into, right? And, and every step of that way, you know, I, I, we got, we just were attracting positivity and goodness and, and creating impact. And then that fed us to do more and to do more and to do more and to do more. And, uh, and it's now gotten us to be this like storytelling platform that I'm so proud, you know, is, is highlighting the incredible, you know, women in and from our region and has even started expanding into like amazing Arab diaspora in the States, for example, like we're working with a lot of content creators now based in the U S that are second generation, um, you know, middle Eastern or first generation Americans that, that feel like this part of their identity is now validated or, or, or enriched because they've heard these stories of people that look like them and sound like them and, and are, and are doing things that are so inspiring. Uh, I mean, that's honestly, you're right now, girl, that's how I'm talking to you. Literally, like I'm like sitting here. I'm like, first of all, the story of kind of the inception of Wamina in itself is super impressive, given the fact that you were objectively a young woman. Like you were, how old were you when, when this all started? I was 23. <laughs> yeah. Like that, that, like you were young and, and, and for you to kind of know or, or have a general idea of like, I know that this is the path I want to take. And then to, to hear how it evolved into what it is today, I think just goes to show like that this is something that you kind of had inside of you all along. You just kind of needed to navigate how exactly you could piece all of these things together, which I think is so beautiful and, and, and so impressive, like honestly. And also like, you know, you're, you're, you're much more articulate than I am. And I, I'm not even saying that like, oh, poor me. Like, I think I'm pretty articulate, but you just explained to me what it is that I want, what it is that I have been doing with my podcast. Yes. I believe that I've been doing like, I'm like, that's, you just literally explained to me the thing that I could not explain for, for so long, which is that like, you know, creating a space for Arab women to see different types of Arab women so that they do not limit themselves to just kind of fit one of these two things, which is like, you know, the, the girl, the Arab girl who gets married, has a family, maybe gets an undergraduate degree. And then, you know, that's kind of her whole vibe. Or like you were saying, the working spinster, which is 
you know, people's favorite thing to say to me, like, oh, you're not married, but I guess you have a job and like you can support yourself. So like, that's good. But in reality, they're like, fuck you. Um, (laughs) But like, you know, understanding the nuances and that we aren't just these two things. Like we are so many things. An Arab woman, like you might not be able to see an Arab woman and know immediately that she's an Arab woman, but that does not make her not an Arab woman. And I think that that's something that I've learned over the years, which is like, and through my podcast and and speaking to all these different people like you, like there is just, everyone has such a different story and experience and life. And like, yes, we are united by this like ethnicity, but like we, there are, there isn't just one version of an Arab or an Arab woman. Like there are so many versions. And, and I think, you know, what you're doing is so incredible. And I, I I really genuinely love, like, I didn't, I had no idea that that's how Wamina evolved. And I think that that makes it even more special because like you started off and, and you, you, you know, you were kind of figuring it out. And then you were like, no, this is the direction I have to take. Like you were like, this is, this is what I need to do. And I think that that really comes across without even knowing your story. I think that definitely comes across just by like hearing you speak on other topics. It's like, no, this is literally like an innate need that you have to be a feminist and to like support women and to highlight women and to like create all of these different platforms for women to share their stories, which brings me personally a deep, immense amount of happiness and joy. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. And you hit the nail on the head. You literally embody what Wamina is all about. That's why I was so like honored to be invited onto this podcast because like everything you do is just so you stand for like for everything we want to highlight about the women in our community and the women that you show on your podcast and that you speak to I mean, uh, I told you there's some women that like uh, they're friends of mine or women that we featured before that you've spoken to already. And it's like, these are the women the world needs to know. And it's such a, it's so important because I feel like in the, in the future of feminism, Arab women are really going to be at the forefront and they embody, you know, resilience and, and they know how to, make systems work for them or work within a system to change it, to, to fit a life that they're building for themselves. And that if you're on the ground in the Middle East right now, you can't help but feel it. Like this is really the age of the Arab woman right now in the Middle East. And it can be scary to some people, but it is so incredibly energizing and empowering um, to be here and to see that. And, and I just want you know, to make it like my life's work to just highlight what they're already doing. Um, because I don't need to, I don't need to make up a story. I don't need to try to tell them like, you can do it. Uh, if you only try, no, they're already doing it. I just need to like amplify the fact that they're doing it. And, and, and I think being a third culture kid means that I can bridge cultures and dialogue to highlight that. And people from the West might listen to me because they think I'm Western and then they'll learn a little something about women in the Middle East and women in the Middle East who know me as a Middle Easterner will understand how to speak to Westerners about their, their existence and their, their, the work that they do here because I'm communicating it in that, in that way. So it's really, I think it's a, it's really important uh, the work that you're doing, the work that we're doing and showing how aligned it is because it's natural, because it's natural for us, because it's part of a much wider movement that is naturally happening right now amongst Arab women. 
Absolutely. And I think that, you know, you, you, you made a good point in that, like, I think for a lot of people, they, they do have this kind of image, especially I think Western Westerners, like when I meet people and I talk to them more often than not, they'll say something along the lines of, and they don't even mean it. I don't think pejoratively, but something along the lines of, this isn't how I expected you to be. You know what I mean? Or just some, some iteration of that, you know? And, and I don't even fault them for it because for a very long time, there was only one image of an Arab woman that was pushed heavily in the media, which is an oppressed woman. Um, and, and that was, that was kind of it. There really, you know, when you think about it growing up, what else was there? I mean, there was queen, uh, queen Rania, queen, like, you know what I mean? Like there were those, but like, even that, you know, there, I think there was no image of like a powerful Arab woman, but then for, for you and I who were exposed to Arab women, we know that Arab women are a fucking force to not be fucked with. Like, like my mom runs the show, like (laughs) my mom's world and we're all just living in it. My dad is down with it too. Like he's not even trying to fight it probably because he knows he will not win. Like Arab women are really resilient. I think women in general are resilient, but like, for the longest time, there was not this image of Arab women. And I think that slowly that image is changing. And, and I'm hearing less and less from people that that kind of idea of like, you're not what I expected, because they now know, Noor is not special. She's not like, she's not the, the one special Arab girl who is different. It's like, no, no, Arab women are just not what we were, we were taught to believe that they are. Like, this was, you know what I mean? And I, and I think that that is really changing and it makes me really happy. And I think that it is important to like highlight that and to share that, especially also for young Arab women who don't feel represented and don't feel like they can kind of do anything that they want because they've never seen it done before. They just haven't been exposed to it, even though it definitely exists. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but I, I mean, honestly, I'll, I'm going to just go ahead and say I could talk to you for like a million hours. <laughs> this like literally went an hour over, but like, I'm just like, there are so many things I want to ask you, but I, I, I do feel like you probably um, have other things to do. So I want to say thank you so much for doing this. And like, genuinely, this is one of my favorite conversations I've ever had. I'm so glad that I just got a chance to talk to you and get to know you. And now I'm going to force you to be my friend because I'm like, you're so <laughs> fucking cool. Um, but I forced me to be your friend. I got it. <laughs> we both follow each other on the gram. Now you can't escape. Yeah. And then whenever yeah. I'll, I'm in the States, I'll hit you up. And I think you should definitely consider a trip, not just to Dubai, but another trip to to Dubai, to Cairo, to Beirut, to Tunis, to, to Ramallah, you need to do like, you need to do a little Middle Eastern tour for yourself. And I think it'll be such an incredible experience for you. And, and I can only tell you how many, I already know how many people um, will be just enlightened um, by, by listening to you talk and, and meeting and meeting with you. And I think it would be a beautiful experience for, for both sides. So I would love to host you if you ever want to come. Uh, and, and I hope we get to do this, this talk again. Um, I know people like this. We can do another, we can do another chat on another day. Yeah, definitely. Um, I do. I want to say thank you again, but also where can people find you online? Where can they find Wamina online? Plug all of the things. I'm also going to link everything down below, but I just want to give you a chance to, to share, um, what you want to plug. 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, you can find me and, and, and Wamina on Instagram uh, and it's at Freha, which is my last name, or, uh, or at Wamina. And then Wamina's also got a buzzing YouTube channel. So if you just go to YouTube slash Wamina, um, you'll find all our stuff on there. We're also on the other platforms, but those are those are our bigger ones. And those you guys can use Google. <laughs> yes. And if you Google, you will find, like I was telling her before we recorded, I'm like, holy shit, like you've done a lot of really impressive stuff. Like when I did a deep dive on her, I was like, oh, wow, this is, there's a lot. There's a lot of things happening here. So, uh, if you... If you look her up or if you look up Wamina, you will find some things, but definitely uh, check out um, their YouTube channel and I'm probably going to binge it right after we're done with this because like I just, I, I I didn't watch any of them, but I saw a few things that I was like, I need to watch this. So I will be binging it. And um, as always, you guys can follow the podcast on Instagram at Arab American Psycho and you can follow me on Instagram at Noor E and you know, wear your SPF, floss your teeth. Don't be an asshole, and I'll talk to you guys next Sunday.